the markets change, industries get over uh, commoditized and get overly competitive or prices get knocked down. So even if you can pass on like hunger and the work ethic and pass on the skills, they might need to apply that to a new area such as stem cell therapy instead of whatever the family had focused on before. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, the show that teaches you and other busy pros how to grow your wealth while living life on your own terms. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and our guest today is Richard Wilson. Richard is from the Family Office Club. He is an expert in family offices, family office investing strategy, and working with family offices in our businesses to raise capital from them as investors in our opportunities. Very excited for this one. For everyone tuning in later on, we're doing a live interview here on Blue Jeans, and we've got folks listening in, and they're more than welcome to ask questions as they come up, and we'll be more than happy to get to them and address them as we move along. So, Richard, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Taylor. So just to get started, for folks that don't have a background in what family offices are, can you give us a little bit of a primer as to just define a family office and kind of what a typical organization looks like? Sure. A family office is a holistic wealth solution put together for a family, and there's really two types. One would be a single family office. For example, if you sold a multifamily portfolio for $100 million, you might not want to walk down the street into Merrill Lynch Connect, a Bank of America, you want a more sophisticated, holistic solution. So you could put together your own team. That would be a single family office where each person on the team is just serving. The other type is a multifamily office, and that is essentially a wealth that is decided to cater to those that are worth 10 million, 50 million. And they might have a dozen clients or 200 clients. And they basically are taking what a wealth management firm typically does and making it much more holistic. Obviously, not every person on the team is being hired for one client. It's for the benefit of most clients that will need to access that person's estate planning brain or be able to access their ability to manage trust for families or design trust structures or tax efficiency or manage all the service providers they have to touch. But the single and the multifamily office structures both have been really taking off. A lot of families, once they hear about these existing, they say, well, why don't we have that for our family? And so it's driving more demand for the industry, the more that education spreads on the trend. Okay. So what's a typical assets under management or a typical size of either a single family office or a multifamily office? What size range is the most common? Sure. Once somebody's at 30 to $50 million net worth, they could have a small single family office while also kind of subsidizing or also leveraging a private or a multifamily office. And they could start to have their own single family office. But once they get close to 100 million in net worth or for sure above that, they need to have some single family office functionality in place to serve themselves well. On the multifamily office side, once somebody is worth seven to eight or $10 million, they could go out and engage a multifamily office. And if you get up to 20 million plus, then you almost for sure should be and you shouldn't put it off any longer in case you've been dragging your feet on doing it. So that's where the numbers start. And I know many families that are worth $200 million that are with multifamily offices. It's just that as you get to that size, you really need lots of help with direct investments, investments into real estate, 
around private transactions and a lot of multifamily offices and wealth management firms and private banks aren't really equipped to help you to a high degree in that manner. So that's why those numbers kind of cross over at those different points. Okay. So regarding where we are right now in the market cycle, things are generally pretty good. Interest rates are ticking up and everything. What are family offices as a typically, you know, on average, what are they targeting today in industry asset allocation and what kind of returns are they looking for right now? If we could get a bit into the current strategies they're pursuing. A lot of families break up how they look at their portfolio into three different parts and they'll have one part that's almost pure defense and they're having exposure to the stock market, to bonds, to commodities and it's just their diversification bucket that's very low risk. And they might only expect to get a 4 to 6% or a 6 to 9% return on that over the longer term. And then the commercial real estate part of their portfolio, typically they try to go into projects that are being underwritten 15 to 22% or have historically been bringing in something close to that range. Obviously, not all projects go as planned, but they're hoping that their commercial real estate portfolio will produce a good 8 to 12 or 10 to 15% return, including the ones that go bad or get stalled for years because of permits or partners falling through, et cetera. And then typically the third part of the portfolio is where they created their wealth in manufacturing or in running an operating business. And wherever their wealth was created, they often invest back into, and that's where they're most aggressive and play the most offense. They don't look at it like IRR or they don't look at it as like, oh, we need to get a 10% return. They look at it long-term. How do they dominate a space? How do they build a $100 million business? How do they build something big in a niche or in an industry versus trying to hold themselves to some IRR that's pretty tough to measure on a business that they might be growing over 10 years or 20 years? Okay. So you mentioned tend to make their money in a variety of ways. Uh, generally, it sounds like they're not making that initial, that substantial wealth initially off of, say, real estate investing. They're just putting money into, as an example, a real estate investment, They but they made their money in operating some kind of manufacturing firm, for example, or some other type of business. In a family office, do you typically have inherited wealth or are you dealing with the folks who directly made the wealth on their own? I assume there's probably some distribution there, but is there a significant skew one way or another? Almost all of my clients are first generation or just early second generation wealth. And their interest in having the family office created is just to have a better solution or a solution that's most appropriate for them being newly liquid. And probably 30 of the families that I've worked with in the past and are working with now created their wealth in real estate. So that is the area where they would play offense and invest back into. But, you know, the three sections of investing, that's for families who made their money in non-real estate spaces. I think that right now when, when someone has a liquidity event and they do their homework, they stumble across the family office concept. Whereas if a family is in the third or fourth generation, they might have figured out some great systems to manage their wealth or have great service providers, but the ones who have had enough wealth to survive three or four generations of it dissipating down through the kids and grandkids, et cetera, and they're still worth hundreds of millions or a billion dollars plus, a lot of times what they have working for them really is a single family office structure or some variation of it. Yeah, that's a pretty incredible achievement because 
as you go three or four generations, they're passing all of those skills and disciplines and everything like that through the the inheritance and also the folks working in the family and running the family office itself, the employees, essentially, they're also bringing in good quality people as that moves along and moves on down the generations to keep the success going. Right, for sure. I think that one thing that's very tough is that the first generation typically was very hungry, oftentimes grew up with few resources, had to work very, very hard to create something. And the next generation grows up going to $40,000 preschools and living four different houses with private jets, engendering that sense of motivation and aspiration and being relatively thrifty and resourceful and, and working very hard. It's hard to carry that through over multiple generations. And it's also hard sometimes to pass on the passion or the interest or the focus on the thing which really created the wealth for the family. So that makes it challenging. And just markets change, industries get over commoditized and get overly competitive or prices get knocked down. So even if you can pass on like the hunger and the work ethic and pass on the skills, they might need to apply that to a new area such as stem cell therapy instead of whatever the family had focused on before, for example. So lots of challenges. Hmm, Interesting. So when a family office thinks about its investments, generally, what are they thinking about in terms of time they're going to stay in their average investment? Are they generally, are they comfortable committing to a 10-year window? Are they generally looking to leave in five to seven? Do they want to find opportunities where their money is going to be parked somewhere for some significant amount of time just so they don't have to spend time managing it? Like, What's the distribution there in terms of how long they're investing their money in any particular type of investment? Sure, sure. Well, there's variation between families and also between what type of investment we're talking about. When it's an investment under somebody else's control, then sometimes they like to know that the money's going to be brought back after five or seven or or 10 years, oftentimes not too much longer, because if they don't have control, the point at which the asset's being sold, it might make them a little bit uncomfortable. If they have control over when to sell, then I think that changes things. They might be comfortable with the fact that it might be a very long-term play or something fortuitous might happen and it might, it might be able to take the money off the table earlier. But I think families really like when there's a downside cap on the risk that they're taking because of a hard asset value or tangible value of something. And they also like when they can refinance out or use a gross revenue royalty in an operating business or something to get their money off the table that they've invested, the principal let the rest ride for a long time going forward, and then they can recycle that investment and put it to use elsewhere. For those, again, that are listening out there to the recording, we have a few people on the line here listening in, and most, if not all of them, are multifamily real estate syndicators at one degree of experience or another, people that are buying real estate by raising money from passive investors And we've already touched on commercial real estate as a a vehicle for family offices to invest their money in. So coming from the side of somebody that's looking to raise money from a family office or family offices in general, can we get a bit into what do they like to see? What's a good resume to have? What kind of mentality do we need to have when approaching family offices? And let's get into that a little bit. Can you talk to that scenario? Yeah, for sure. 
So I think the most important thing is to just realize that you don't need to find 30 family offices to work with. A lot of people come to the family office space after raising capital from 42 different LPs that all invested 50 or 150,000 each on average or a couple hundred thousand each. Well, with family offices, all you need is two or three of them or handful of them. And it's going to raise credibility and be allow you to raise more capital from smaller LPs as well as more family offices down the road. And so it really can be game changing just to get a couple on board and give you momentum in the space. And family offices like to work with people they trust and they trust people who are really dedicated to their space and show expertise in it, show focus, show dedication over the long term to a space. And a lot of them see a lot of deal flow. So you really have to come to the table knowing your competition better than the family office does and knowing how you're unique in a way that the family office cares about. Because if you come to them and say, oh, we're a multifamily independent sponsor or we buy apartment buildings and we buy B-class or garden style and we do five to 10K renovations per door and slowly raise rents and produce a 20% IRR. It's like they've heard that 5,000 times. So I think that you have to be really certain about exactly who you are in the landscape and of the other sponsors out there and be able to communicate that within a single sentence. I think those are some of the most important points. And it's the opposite of what most people do. Most people go around pitching their deals, not building the relationship first, not adding value first, saying the same thing everybody else says. And I think that you have to be different or you just get lost in the noisy inboxes and people don't. A good number of multifamily sponsors, syndicators out there raising money. And you certainly, you alluded to, they've heard that same pitch over and over again. Now, as far as getting those opportunities to pitch or build, build that relationship, as you mentioned, you know, we shouldn't be focused on pitching. We should be focused on building relationships. What's a good way for us to get started just meeting family offices in the first place? Let's say, Hey, I'm, I'll just take my case. I'm in Richmond, Virginia. I have a decent network here and throughout the country, but I don't know any family offices. I don't even know where to get started. So what does someone do to start networking with family offices? Sure. One thing is to figure out where types of family offices are most likely to invest in your deals congregate. So it could mean someone who lives local to the multifamily properties that you're investing in and figure out how to get access to them. Are they part of local charitable philanthropy organizations? Are they part of a local YPO or Tiger 21 or a program or a membership or an association or a Porsche club? Or like I used to be part of a Rolls-Royce Bentley Owners Club in, in South Florida, for example. Many times, if you look at your passions and what types of programs would attract family office quality professionals, there could be an overlap. I pay $50,000 a year for membership in one organization, and I just go once a quarter for two days, and the networking is excellent, and the knowledge I get from there is excellent, so it pays for itself. And I think that that is hard advice to follow when you're getting started because people don't have twenty-five dollars or $50,000 to throw around for memberships. So you have to get creative and create those relationships otherwise. You can do things. We have 10 investor summits a year with the Family Office Club. At each one, we've got 30 family offices speaking on stage. So at the very least, out of our 10 investor summits, if you came to just three, 
you would hear from 90 family offices what they're looking for, how they invest, how they think, how they manage their portfolio. It's a quick education on what the space expects of people pitching them deals. Another thing is looking at family office directories and databases and finding one so that you can, while traveling, meet with more family offices by leveraging a database or directory, but also just reaching out. Like when I was in Prague, I looked up, I found a couple family offices in Prague via LinkedIn, met with one out of the two. I had approached via email face-to-face and built a relationship with them. So I think that you have to realize that family offices might be secretive and hard to get a hold of, but they also are everywhere. They're in every city, every state, et cetera. And the last thing I'll say is that the best way to generate relationships with family offices would be to figure out a very consistent way where you can add value to them first so that you can have a foot in the door consistently and create a system where you can attract the office investors. So we always teach, like I'm here in Dallas in a hotel right now because I'm uh, teaching a workshop tomorrow and it's six and a half hours of going over a more long hundred slide answer to the question you just asked me. So I'm trying to summarize this hundred slides here in three or four minutes. But basically, if you can create a system where family offices are cold calling you and emailing you, then it's much better than you reaching out to them. And there's many ways to do that based on your geography and skill sets. And just a couple of quick examples is I've got a resource called How to Start a Family Office. So I help families that are just had a liquidity event and I help them put their family office together. So that gets us new relationships in the space every week. Uh, we produce content, publications, podcasts, and the whole family office club itself was designed to add genuine value to family offices and those looking to start one, as well as those raising capital from them. And that attracts family offices to us all the time as well. So we need to figure out what system you can set up for yourself to attract family offices like Clockwork so you're not chasing them. They're coming to you. Okay, so the best way is to figure out some kind of, like you said, way to add value to them, some kind of piece of content or or content strategy that gets them coming to you, asking questions. And your example, I mean, you've created a whole ecosystem yourself to of thought leadership to get them coming to you. So the proof's in the pudding. Like you said, not everybody has 50K to drop on going to one meeting a quarter. But when you get to that point and you've built that whole funnel, then it makes a lot more sense to continue going out and meeting the family offices where they are. So that's awesome. Now, I don't want people to get the wrong idea either. When I started, I had $900 in my bank account and my rent in Harvard Square was $1,400 a month. And I had to figure things out. And I didn't have any investors in the family office club. And we don't have any investors or debt in the family office club today. But I just had to use elbow grease and providing thought leadership and adding insight just through adding lots of insight in my own time and hard work that built things up. And then I just kept on reinvesting, reinvesting. So I started with absolutely nothing. People might be like, oh, well, that's cheating. That's great for you. You have money to throw around. Well, I didn't. It's 12 years <laughs> later after a lot of hard work that I've just kept reinvesting. And the other thing I'd mention is that I used to live in Portland, Oregon, where there's absolutely no family offices. All the craft breweries and marijuana voters scare them away, along with the high taxes. For six years operating in Oregon, I met two family offices where at my four-year-old's backyard barbecue birthday at my house a few weeks ago, we had three family offices just in the backyard of the barbecue because they happened to be in the 
preschool class of my daughter. So I think where you live and where you spend your time, what communities you're part of, et cetera, make a massive impact. You can on accident meet more family offices taking your kid to the park if you're living in the right area versus where you live being 100% cost and not an investment that you're ever going to get an ROI on. If you're living in a space that's just sparse with any investors or successful people that are going to motivate you. Nice. So from your perspective, and again, I'd like to touch on kind of where things are now. What are family offices hunting for right now, both in the sense of a particular type of investment, like what kind of asset class are they looking for? And then in the sense of, I just want to pick your brain for some other thought leadership type of ideas. What's something that you wish you could do with your thought leadership platform, but for whatever reason, you're not going to do? Just uh, if I can try to pull that out of you too. Sure. Yeah. Family offices want more than anything to work with people that are very long-term minded and have a unique approach. Hopefully there's two things that are compelling and unique about your approach. It could be your focus. It could be another thing, but a couple examples of that would be there's a multifamily group in the Midwest and they only buy apartment buildings in one city and they bought 10 apartment buildings last year in that one city. So now they have around 4,000 doors in that city. So whenever a property goes on the market, they see it first. They know how to value it quickly. Brokers know that they close. Investors have confidence that they know their market very well. And the story is just much stronger than the sponsor who says, well, we invest in this region or in these five different cities. We're always looking at demographics and adjusting our strategy versus knowing something down cold. Another example is a group that not only has a very lean fee model, so their fees are about a third of what everyone else is charging, but on top of that, they're only buying office parks in the Midwest that are at a 9% cap rate or higher. And that combination of finding good cap rate deals, very focused office parks only in the Midwest, and very low fees has allowed them to grow from $400 million in assets under management to $1.6 billion just in the last two years. So those are two examples of when I talk about focus or something compelling or unique or something that really stands out from all the rest of the stuff that's just slightly different. It's like, okay, you're doing it in Atlanta versus Chicago. Team is great, just like everyone else's team. You know, you really need something that is going to reach out and grab people when they hear it and say, wow, that's awesome. Or, wow, I've been looking for something like that. Family offices are used to have people ignoring them when they pitch them and they just get pitched and people don't really listen to them. And I think one trend is performance-only fees or performance-slanted fees versus charging acquisition fees, management fees, asset management fees, property management fees, renovation fees, construction fees. I think having it be more about we charge you money when we make you money, and that's when we've earned it, is an industry trend. And the last part of what, what you asked in terms of like a thought leadership focus I think family offices are looking for areas of inefficiency. It could be something they're not aware of when it comes to opportunity zones, or it could be something related to they think they know multifamily, but they haven't considered this one niche of it. Or maybe they've heard of multifamily a lot, but they haven't really seriously considered mobile home park portfolio investing. And maybe that's an area. It's about finding where you can arbitrage, where there is either inefficiency and confusion or where there's pain and you are relieving the pain 
that they have, the pain of being charged a lot of fees before someone makes the money, the pain of maybe they want to do direct investing, but everyone wants them to be an LP, but they really would like to be joint venturing with a sponsor if they could and developing a program around that. It'd be interesting to some family offices. So those are just some top of mind ideas. Nice. I appreciate that. So I'd like to ask you a couple questions more centered around your specific experience in investing. So let's get into those. First, what is the best investment that you, Richard Wilson, have ever made? Well, I'd have to say in my own business, just because I don't get taxed on it and I can just put that money right back in and I have control over what's happening. So hopefully anyone here who runs a business believes their own business is the best investment. Otherwise, I would just shut it down and invest in other people's ideas. <laughs> other than that, the best one was a royalty investment that we made a couple of years ago in an operating business. And we got a, uh, a healthy gross revenue royalty. And within six months, we were able to triple the revenues in that business and then exited the business. And we did well on that deal. And because of that, we just closed another gross revenue royalty deal about two months ago in Q4 that hopefully will go as well, but we'll see. Awesome. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment that you've ever made? The worst investment was in a ice cream business. It was the second location of a franchise brand ice cream business. The first location seemed to be going well. So I invested in the second one and it was just awful and painful every step of the way. Just invest in the lessons we learned from that was like one, I didn't have the ability to step in, take over and just run the investment. So I want that ability in the future, uh, or at least ability to really help in ways that I could with my team. And also really investing only with really tried and true operators with a seven year track record, hopefully or longer that have met substantial success, a million plus in revenue and not, not a group that just started one, one location. And I guess just to watch out for warning signs early on that somebody is really not experienced as a business person. Because some things like you shouldn't have to explain, but if it's somebody's first time running a business, then they don't know the very basics and they're burning your money for their diploma. Mm, yeah, that is a tough lesson learned. So my favorite question and these questions I ask at the end of every show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in investing? Sure. Most important thing I've learned in investing is also the most important thing for running a family office, for raising capital, and for personal life, I think. And it's all one thing. It's integrity. We're making sure that everything is integrated, not just like moral integrity. I mean, that's good to have as well, obviously, but like the other 500 things going on in your life, like what you had for dinner tonight, is that aligned with who you're trying to be, who you're meeting with tomorrow, what emails you're spending time answering? What are you putting out in the marketplace? Is that aligned and integrated with what family offices actually want? Is that aligned with what's actually going to make you stand out and be unique in the marketplace? Because if you have people on your team that are not aligned with your culture, or you are working with partners not aligned with your own morals or ethics, then things are just going to be anchors all around you and slowing you down and making life unpleasant and slow to make progress in. But if you move from Portland, Oregon to where I live on the island of Key Biscayne in Miami, then things become more aligned and things start going better. So the more that a family office, a capital raiser, or any individual can align all the variables in their life to all be pointing in the same direction, then the more momentum 
you'll get because there's just harmony among all the moving pieces instead of things clashing against each other constantly. I like that. The mentality of how you do anything is how you do everything. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have your thought leadership platform that we touched on. You have a great podcast. Would you like to tell everyone about that? Yeah, sure. It's called uh, the Family Office Podcast and a little bit of our event content and some quick notes from me on there. If you're interested in raising capital, we have at capitalraising.com a free 80-page book. It just takes an hour or two to get through and enjoy that. We have 10 live workshops on capital raising that we do all over the U.S. as well as London, Toronto, Singapore. You might want to check out. Those are on familyoffices.com. And if family offices is a brand new concept and you're still not sure what we're talking about, I hope everyone has for sure understood that it's not running an office out of somebody's (laughs) home. It's really serving the ultra wealthy. But if you do want to dig in more and learn all about the space and it sounds exciting to you, we've got a free book on familyoffices.com. We've got tons of stuff on YouTube for free. Our whole model, like you, is just to give away as much as we can at no cost. And then things always come around and make business friends that way and just help people out years before they do business with us. And that, that seemed to be working well for us. Awesome. So if folks want to get in touch with you, ask follow-up questions, what's the best place for them to reach out? Right. You know, best way is typically to email me directly at richard at familyoffices.com. To be honest, we, I get so many incoming messages that there'll be some messages that I will reply to because I can help you and it's a quick response. Uh, if it's something more in detail or you need to get on the phone to really understand what we do, then I'll be connecting you with one of the 18 people on my team just to uh, survive the day email load wise. But yeah, feel free to, to email me at richard at familyoffices.com and we'll get back to you. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks to everyone who tuned in to the live interview. I hope you all got a lot out of our discussion today. I certainly encourage you to check out Richard's podcast. It's a great listen. And many of those live events, the folks that are there are just absolute killers. People that were, that are major power players made, made their fortunes originally making big moves on Wall Street or founding a huge business and doing very well, having an awesome liquidity event and then getting into the family office space. So it's a great listen. Highly recommend it. Highly recommend you check out the website. For now, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I look forward to talking to you next week. Take care. Take care.